0: Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Genesis chapter 32. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw that he said when Jacob saw them he said this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir the country of Edom instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell, them, tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, And he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hands of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels, and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are those, whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, "Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed." Then Jacob asked him, "Please tell me your name." But he said, "Why is it that you ask my name?" And there he blessed him. For Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, "For I have seen the face of God; for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered." The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of the hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The word of the Lord.
1: The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for this day that you have made. And now, in the hearing of your word, help us to understand. And in understanding, help us to trust your word and obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Last week, we heard the story of Abraham and Sarah and the birth of their promised son named Isaac. Isaac grows up and he marries a woman named Rebekah, and after 20 years of marriage, they have twin sons named Esau and Jacob. Jacob had a very unusual birth. His twin brother Esau was born first But Jacob came out immediately afterwards grabbing his brother's heel as if he wanted to get out first. And so because of that, they gave him the name Jacob, which means grabber, overreacher, supplanter. He's a heel. And Jacob lived up to this name throughout his life. He took advantage of his brother's hunger, for example, and had him sell to him his birthright for a bowl of stew. Then as middle-aged men, he deceived his nearly blind and dying father by dressing up and pretending to be Esau to steal the blessing of the firstborn. I know all of you with siblings have sometimes difficulty getting along with one another. But this But this is sibling rivalry at its worst. And because of this, Esau threatened to kill Jacob. And that's why he spent the last 20 years in exile with his uncle Laban. So he returns home. And Jacob sends messengers ahead of him with a message indicating that he's going to submit to Esau. He calls Esau Lord, Master and he calls himself his servant, and he asks that he might find favor in his sight. Jacob presents himself with abject humility as if he's changed, as if he wants to mend their relationship. But this is Jacob, and given his long history, we ought to be a little skeptical about his sincerity and wonder about his true intentions. In any case, the message of abasement seems not to have worked, and the messengers return with the news that Esau is on his way with 400 men, presumably to seek revenge and perhaps even to kill Jacob. This is not two young men getting ready to fight. Based on various pieces of information scattered throughout the book of Genesis, and if we do the math, and if I'm not entirely mistaken, Jacob and Esau are in their 90s at the moment of this encounter. Now, since Jacob is going to live to 147, perhaps an equivalent age today might be in their 50s. So we got two middle-aged guys in their 50s, getting ready to fight. Sounds like Cobra Kai, doesn't it? Right, two middle-aged men doing bad karate, renewing their rivalry from when they were teenage boys. Jacob might be willing to face Esau alone, but he is not prepared to fight 400 men, and he is described as, understandably, terrified scientists tell us that when people face a threat that our bodies enter into what is known as hyper arousal or acute stress response this is uh, popularly known as the uh, fight or flight response right if you're walking around in your neighborhood for example and suppose you come across a bear you either run away as fast as you can or perhaps if you're walking with your children, you might scream and, and charge the bear with your bear flares or I don't know, and right, in an effort to protect your family. Over the years, in addition to this uh, fight or flight response, researchers, researchers have added additional responses that the body takes. For example, I know that at least one member of my family, if she or he were to face a bear, she, would become so paralyzed with fear that she would simply freeze. She wouldn't fight, she wouldn't take flight, she would just freeze. And more recently, some psychologists have suggested one other possibility, and that is the response of fawn. Doesn't mean you turn into a Bambi or something. They say that when people are facing ongoing threats such as in an abusive relationship, they might respond by trying to please or to pacify and uh, appease their oppressor uh, in an effort to protect themselves. And so we have these four possibilities, flight, fight, freeze, or fawn. But what does Jacob do? He does what he always does. I want to suggest that he faints, not F-A-I-N-T-S, but F-E-I-N-T-S. He tries to outwit his brother as he has always done. This is Jacob, the trickster, the manipulator. First, he divides his family and his possessions into two camps, thinking that if one gets attacked, maybe the other will escape. He's gambling, he's, he's taking a calculated risk so that in the worst case scenario, he can at least salvage half of what he possesses. Then he prays. He reminds God that it was God, it was your idea, you're the one who told me to come back. He admits that he's not worthy of all the favors and all the things that he has received, and he asks for deliverance from his brother, and yet he prays, reminding God that it was his idea and that he had promised that there would be many descendants, insinuating, if I die, you are not going to be able to keep your promises. On the surface, it sounds like Jacob is submitting himself to God's mercy as he did with Esau. But again, we have to wonder, this is Jacob. Maybe he's just trying to manipulate God. Third, he strategizes. He decides to send a series of gifts to his brother. 200 female goats and two male goats, followed by 200 ewes and 20 rams and all these other animals and he sends them in five successive waves. And again, we know that he's trying to soften up his brother and maybe he's just again just trying to get on his good side. But this is Jacob and we are suspicious of his motivations. It has to be more than gifts. Sending so many animals is more than a gift. It's a way to distract Esau. Imagine you're, you're, you're coming for battle and just wave upon waves of animals are coming to you. Now, what do you. now you've got to take care of these animals. You've got all these animals, you know, they got to be herded, they got to be fed. They're making a lot of noise. Jacob is preventing Esau from ambushing him. He's trying to distract him. Maybe the, the soldiers or the men who are with Esau aren't going to be quite as ready for battle. Jacob's actions are a classic example of what I think most people do when faced with a crisis. Think about the last time you got yourself into some trouble with your significant other or with your children or with your parents or with a teacher or with an employer. I'll give you a minute. Think about the last time you got into some trouble. Got it? What did you do? What did you do? Were you immediately repentant? Did you get down on your knees in prayer? Did you recognize your wrongdoing and full-heartedly admit to yourself and to the one that you had wronged them? Did you apologize, apologize and seek to make amends regardless of the cost to yourself? did you do everything you could immediately to restore that relationship? Probably not. Probably not. You probably did what Jacob did. First, you try to solve it on your own. And if that doesn't work, then you pray. And then after you pray, you hedge your bets and you make further plans to get out of trouble. And so prayers at that point become nothing more than a prop, a feint designed to look spiritual but without any genuine power or faith. It's like the adage you may have heard that was given to sailors in a storm. Pray, but row to shore. Or in its older form, pray, but tie the camel. Pray to your gods. It's fine, go ahead and pray, but... You can't really rely on them. You have to rely on yourself. Maybe the gods will help you, but it's better to control things. It's better for you to be in control. It's the practical model of most Christians today. God helps those who help themselves. Now, we could put a better spin on this and say that along with James, And say that this is an application of the teaching about faith and works. Prayer and faith certainly do not exclude making a good effort on our part. If you're in the middle of a storm, yeah, you can't just pray and sit back and expect a miraculous delivery. You should row to shore. You pray and you work. That's fair. This is not an argument against hard work or taking responsibility for yourself and others. But again, this is Jacob. He has a long history of conning others and always looking for an edge to take advantage of them. So even his prayer is likely a calculated effort to gain whatever advantage he might from God, if there is a God and he isn't entirely sure. It's one thing to trust God and then to follow that up with work. It's quite another to work God into your own trusted schemes, which is exactly what Jacob does and which I think what a lot of people of faith do. Don't we, practically speaking, act like this? Don't we pride ourselves in our ability to solve our own problems? Don't we think that it's largely up to us to put food on the table and a roof over our heads? Don't we think that our success at work or at school is a result of our work ethic, our intelligence, our skills. This is how we kind of practically live day to day. We make plans, and then we might ask God to bless those plans, or at least come along for the ride. I think a rebuke against such an attitude, an emphatic no to the kinds of actions that Jacob is taking, comes in this most Enigmatic of all stories in the scriptures. Without any effort, without any warning, without any foreshadowing, a man suddenly appears and wrestles with Jacob all night. I mean, who does that? And there's a bit of humor here. There's a lot of wordplay. The Hebrew word for wrestling is a homonym for the name of the river Jabbok. So it's like Jacob jabboked By the Jabbok with a Jabboker who is never named who doesn't reveal himself and it's all happening in the dark and and the narrator uses just a pronoun to say he did this and he did that it's never exactly clear who did what I know that in the ESV uh, it names Jacob uh, but most of the time it just says he and so we're never sure who has the advantage it's all shrouded in darkness and mystery so who is this wrestler and why does he wrestle Jacob all night he's called a man at first but Jacob is persuaded that it was not a man that he wrestled with but that this was a manifestation of God last week we saw something similar when Abraham met the three strangers and realized that the Lord was among them in the book of Genesis people have these encounters with God in the guise of human beings or as an angel of the Lord. We've already seen God do that with Adam and Eve walking with them in the garden and with Sarah uh, and Abraham with the strangers. God has been described also as a gardener, as a potter, as a surgeon. And so we are to know and to understand that God interacts with humanity in these sorts of concrete ways. And so I think we can think of these interactions that Genesis tells us about as a prelude, as a foreshadowing of the incarnation of Jesus, the God who will be physically, concretely with us. So why does God do this? Why does God command Jacob, go back to your homeland, go back to your home, and then wrestle with him, injuring him as if he's trying to prevent him from fulfilling the commandment that he had given him? Why does God do that? I think we can get a little bit of help from two other odd incidents where God does something very similar. In Exodus 4, Moses will be commanded by God to go back to Egypt to bring the people out of Egypt from the uh, the house of slavery. And so on his way back to Egypt in obedience to God's word we are told, at the lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So God tells Moses, go back, I have this great plan for you to lead my people out, and as he's on his way, God sends an angel to kill him. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? Well, Moses certainly had no idea why. But his wife, Zipporah, she understood Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she had said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Again, this is also a very difficult passage. But Moses had not circumcised his son and God apparently did not want Moses to return without having done so. Moses cannot return home until he has fully committed himself to the covenantal promises of God as symbolized in the rite of circumcision. In other words, Moses must return having entrusted himself fully to God's promises of deliverance and not upon his own strength Before he can go back Likewise in Numbers 22 We have an even stranger story About the prophet Balaam Who has been tasked With cursing the Israelites And so God allows him to go But again on the way God once again intervenes And blocks his path He sends an angel with a sword to kill him After he told him to go And Balaam is saved By his faithful donkey Who even talks back at him To protect him Balaam had been so overly eager to go and to do his usual thing and get paid. And God tells him, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. Balaam had to learn that before he could enter the new land, he had to submit himself fully to God's command. Now these three stories, they're all so unusual. But in each case, God commands someone to go somewhere and then God Blocks that path. And I think God does this because God does not want them to continue on their journey. God does not want us to continue on our journey without a moment, without this confessional transformation. In Balaam's case, it's quite explicit. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, I have sinned. For I did not know that you stood in the road against me. He makes this confession. And in the case of Moses, it's Zipporah who confronts Moses of his sin. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. And she even takes action on his behalf to rectify it. And for Jacob, the moment of this transformation begins when the wrestler asks him, What is your name? What is your name? Earlier in his life, when he stole his brother's birthright, his father had asked him, who are you, my son? And Jacob had answered, I am Esau, your firstborn. He had dressed up as his brother. He lied about his identity. And that whole scene, that whole scene represents, it it, it tells us about Jacob's desire to supplant his brother Esau that he had spent his life scheming to replace him and now he is asked to identify himself what is your name and he says that he is Jacob I am the one who supplants I am the grabber I am the one who overreaches I am the one who manipulates this is what I've always been he's finally able to to admit to confess who he is that he has been Jacobing his way through life and once he's able to do that he is ready to receive a new name and a blessing the wrestler tells him your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel for you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed you are no longer the one who grabs and overreaches for blessing You are Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. It's an ironic name because Israel actually means God has prevailed, not that Jacob has prevailed. And did he really win? He spent his entire life trying to beat everyone else. He scammed the birthright and family blessing from his brother. He cheated his uncle out of his livestock But in winning this way, he lost. Everyone he met got burned by him, and there was always an air of distrust and hate surrounding him. He thought that he could do the same with God. What he didn't realize is that God wanted him to prevail, just not in the way that he had been prevailing. George MacDonald, in his story, The Lost Princess, writes, but there are victories far worse than defeats. There are victories far worse than defeats. And to overcome an angel too gentle to put out all his strength and ride away in triumph on the back of a devil is one of the worst. You see what's going on here? The wrestler could have prevailed at any time. He didn't hit Jacob hard. It's not even like he found some secret pressure point and, and, you know, knocked him out. It says he just touched him at the hip socket. That's it. That's all it took. And it's then that Jacob now just clings to the wrestler because he knows he's been defeated and he asks for a blessing. He knows that he cannot prevail against this divine presence by trickery, or by his own strength. He learns, I think, as we must learn again and again, that God's blessing does not come to us as we prevail over those around us, leaving behind a wake of deception and destruction. It comes as we seek the peace and welfare of others. Blessing is not something that can be stolen or grabbed, It must be received as it is freely given, even as we admit that we are not worthy. I discovered this week that the interpretive key to this passage and to Jacob's entire life can be found in the book of Hosea. Hosea 12 says this about Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. That's Hosea's take on this story. He wept and he sought his favor. That's how he prevailed. That's how he prevailed. He acknowledged his sin and his need for mercy and deliverance. That's it. It's what Frederick... Buechner calls the magnificent defeat. It was a magnificent defeat. He didn't fight, take flight, freeze, fawn, or faint. It's nothing he did. Rather, he submitted himself to God and he received God's favor. Or as he put it, he saw God's face-to-face and he lived. The start of his transformation Begins with this magnificent defeat. When Jacob left home 20 years ago, he left at night. He made a deal with God that if God helped him out, he would let God be his God as if he were doing God a favor. Now he realizes that indeed God had helped him throughout his life, that God had kept his end of the bargain and he awakens to a new morning, and he will face his brother now, not in his own strength, right? Actually, he's weakened. He's got a limp. He certainly can't fight. But he will now approach his brother with this new profound understanding of having met God and knowing that God is for him and wanting to bless him and that his blessing is not to the exclusion of the blessing of his brother he can finally now return home and be open to genuine favor this is not to say that everything will be easy nor that jacob has been completely transformed he will struggle his name israel will not fully stick he will be called jacob as well as israel throughout the rest of genesis he will make mistakes he will uh show favoritism to one of his kids and set up the kind of sibling rivalry that made his life so miserable with his own family. But he will also grow. That's the hope, he will also grow. He will grow because of this mysterious encounter with God. And that encounter has now put him on a different trajectory, on a different path. The poet Rainier Maria Roque has a poem entitled The Man Watching, And it concludes with these words about Jacob. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater things. This is also how we grow, by being defeated by the grace and mercy of God. Pray with me. Lord, we recognize that Jacob did not choose to wrestle with you, but that you came to him in grace. Somehow you are able to weave together the strands of our autonomy and even our sinfulness with your divine covenantal destiny. And so, God, we would ask that you would help us to seek your face and your favor. Help us to grow through defeat by being defeated decisively again and again by your grace. And in so doing, even as you prevail over us, we also prevail with you. Help us to open ourselves to you And we ask clinging to you for the promise of favor and blessing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.